Something of a potentially important exercise tonight is, uh, as we start to consider the grace of God, is my encouragement for a moment to try to abandon everything that you conceptualize of the grace of God, because I think we tend to have a lot of wrong things in our head. And so, rather than that, uh, uh, try and start with me to rejoice in the two things, uh, at least, that we've been going over the last couple of weeks. Um, rejoice in the great justice and wrath of God that I taught about last week. God is good, um, He is just, and He punishes sin, and consequently, He feels strongly about it. It isn't a dry, emotionless thing uh, for the Lord. He is full of wrath. The week before that was about his holiness. Um, that was from Sproul, uh, an aspect of that anyways, the idea of God being holy other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He is different than us. And Sproul's uh, example of that was being more or less terrified to be in the presence of someone so different and so holy than us. It's a frightful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so God is good, which means in part he is just and angry. And if he is just, he judges rightly regarding our sin with fury. Just consider this as lead up into thinking about the grace of God. He will punish all evildoers. He will leave no injustice in the universe. So specifically what I'm encouraging you to do is to consider and praise God for these truths that I'm rehearsing from the last couple of weeks. He will leave no injustice in the universe. There will be no stone unturned, morally speaking, no lie or evil action left unaccounted for. Uh, Do not take, uh, seek vengeance, for vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, right? In that passage, he doesn't just say, don't seek revenge, because that's bad. Uh, That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't you seek vengeance. The Lord has perfect vengeance, because he's perfectly just, and that is good, and we should praise him for it. Praise God for his holiness and justice and wrath. If you knew nothing about God's grace, you ought to exult in his justice. At least I would say, I put, say this, in the abstract. <laughs> At least in the abstract, as a principle, because God is God. It's good that he's just. It's good that he's Uh, furiously angry over sin because he's God. But it's obviously hard to do that in the abstract because there is no true abstract for us in this regard since in that scenario we stand condemned under his justice, right? As sinners, we stand condemned and God is furiously furiously angry if you're not in Jesus. So praising him for that justice is, let's say, the least difficult, maybe impossible. It's perhaps the uh, mental exercise that's just uh, doomed to uh, futility. But I think it's important to try because, and hear this, this is more or less a summary of the whole message, if we want to understand and stand in awe of God's grace, we need the nature of God's holiness and justice and wrath to be ringing in our minds or God's grace will be cheap. And I think there's a lot of cheap grace being taught um, and believed in American churches and and who knows all around the world. Um, There's a great deal of cheap grace 
to put it in the negative way, because uh, there's not much rejoicing and emphasizing and understanding God's holiness and his justice and his wrath. It's a lot of cheap grace. Cheap grace meaning, oh, that's nice. Thanks, God. Right? He had grace on me. You sing a song like that and you don't really feel anything because God's basically just a good guy and he forgave me some stuff, but it's not that big a deal. And at least as far as I'm concerned, trying to do my best to communicate holiness and justice and wrath, uh, it is a big deal. And to the degree we don't understand that, we don't understand and won't feel and love God's grace. And so here is more or less the goal. We want to, I want to, feel more and taste more in my soul the greatness of God when we sing things like amazing love, how can it be that thou my God should die for me? That's a question in that song. Amazing love. And then it's the question is, he's saying amazing love. It's amazing. And specifically, how can it be that God should die for me? How can that be? That's the premise uh, in question form of why when you say amazing love ought to, uh, at the best of times, feel amazing, right? It's not just objectively true that it's amazing, but it is a experience of one's soul to stand in awe, to be amazed at that love. How can that be that he should die for me? And in that question, obviously, the, the questioner is, is more or less a demeanor, right, of exasperation. It's not an intellectual question per se or only. How can it be you're pulling your hair out? That's not right. It doesn't make sense. That's the foundation of amazing love or simply amazing grace, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amazing grace. Why is it amazing? That's what we want to feel. And I don't mean just merely in an emotional sense. I mean in a, a deep-rooted affections for how great God is because when we do that, right, when you feel that way and express it um, to others as well, both in song as we sing together and just in words generally, it makes much of God. And so I talk a lot, anyways, a fair bit about enjoying and delighting in God, this kind of language. I'm affected by people like Piper for a long, long time now. He's been an insanely help, insane influence in my life. We want to delight and enjoy God. I didn't grow up with that kind of uh, language. It just wasn't really there, at least not much uh, that I recall. Uh, earlier, uh, in our beginning of our Attributes of God thing, I argued that the purpose of life is to know God. I think it's pretty straightforward. That's what eternal life is in John 17, 4. That's the purpose of life is to know God. Hence the motivation for doing the attributes of God. We want to know him better by his grace. We are made to know and delight in all of who God is. We are, made, we are meant for that. right? Like If you consider and reflect on the purpose of what in the world are you doing here, what are you for, exactly? And a lot of people that commit suicide, everyone, arguably, who commits suicide do not know the answer to that question. What are you for? Well, 
Here's one way to put it. We are made to know and delight in all of who God is. That's what we're for, right? And so in everything, this sounds like I might be off, uh, off target. I'm not, trust me. Uh, the beauty of the stars to the sunset to good food, those are things that we are meant to enjoy and give God praise. We're knowing him in some fashion in those things when we look up at the stars and experience uh, the awe that can often happen, at least if you get out in the country far enough and you can really see it, right? And the Bible says God declared, God's, uh, uh, <laughs> the heavens declare the glory of God. That's what it's doing, right? That's true. And you can take joy in God that way or love of uh, delight between other people, love between image bears. We're knowing God. We're experiencing what he is to some degree because he is Trinity. He is a community and therefore we're made for that. Those are all true, all amazing. They're all aspects of knowing God. But catch this, at the absolute heart of how God has planned us to know him, the heart of it is through grace. It's through grace. In other words, the shape that we are to know God most is in the shape of a cross. If there's a shape in which we understand God, it's the shape of a cross. It's the shape of sacrifice. It's the shape of grace. So for instance, to make the point about uh, knowing God in all these ways, one of my favorite verses uh, along these lines is Psalm 1611. It says, in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy in God's presence at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I recall thinking of that first time I heard that. It sounded like it wasn't in the Bible. It sounded strange. So pleasures in God's right hand. And someone pointed out to me at one point that at God's right hand is not merely pleasures in general, but Jesus Christ. <laughs> because when he ascended, he sat down at the Father's right hand. And they made an argument that that's really what is the idea there in the psalmist's uh, mind. I don't know whether that's strictly true, if the psalmist had that in mind, but I think it's true. Jesus is at the Father's right hand, and our relationship, our joy, our love of God is and always will be distinctively through a particular way, namely grace. That's the pleasures forevermore, and in his presence, I think, as well, the fullness of joy is through Jesus. It's through the cross. It's through grace. It's at the absolute heart of the Christian message. And so obviously it really matters that we understand it better and better because if we're walking around talking about people to the gospel or just <laughs> sitting in a room at night struggling with some sin or guilt or meaning in life and we don't have a fuller grasp of these things, uh, we won't last long. So we are made to know God distinctively through grace. So how and why does it work that way? How and why has God set it up this way that we know him through grace? We need to understand what grace is. And I did that in three. I didn't give myself a, an outline, unfortunately. A uh, number of points. What grace is, and then three Ps at the end. What is grace? Uh, simply put, my favorite definition I'm going to give you some pithy definitions and then we're going to spend like half our time just walking through some scripture. That's how it worked out. Grace is uh, 
undeserved favor. Grace is undeserved favor. Uh, Favor, first of all, a few words on what favor is. You could say something like this. Grace is the power of God and inclination of God's character to overflow in blessing. It's the power of God and the inclination of his character to overflow in blessing. He, in other words, he wants to bless. It is his very nature to do so. That's who he is. He wants something, and it is in his nature to bless. He wants to overflow in blessing. Overflowing in blessing is not something uh, God merely chooses to do because he's in a good mood or he even decides he wants to bless. It's not something he chooses in that sense. God's grace is such that he can't help but overflow in this way. It is his inclination. It's who he is. It's what he wants. I could go on and on and on about this, but this theme is found throughout the entire Bible. It's, I chose not to put this any of this in here, but you know, oftentimes people think the God of the Old Testament is just uh, angry and justice and wrath. And then Jesus shows up and all of a sudden grace is here, right? And he's all of a sudden wanting to be a a nice guy. And it's not at all the way it is. Um, Arguably, in fact, there's more about hell and wrath and fury in the New Testament than the Old, especially in any kind of eternal afterlife aspect. There's a great deal of wrath in the Old Testament, but it has to do with more temporary things a great deal of the time. So that's not the case. God is this way from all eternity past, right? Sans time, whatever you want to say. God is this way. He is an overflowing Uh, being who overflows in blessing. And so this theme is found throughout the entire Bible. The first commands in the Bible, this is one of my favorite uh, little examples. The first commands in the Bible, some of you recognize this example, are not, quote, curious what anyone thinks that quote would be. They are not, do not eat of the tree. And then usually, I don't know, whatever, like eight, nine times out of ten when I ask somebody, right, uh, what is the first thing God commanded Adam and Eve? Almost everybody says, oh, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They know something about the Genesis story because everyone has been raised around Christian uh, stuff in this part of the world. And like, that's false. <laughs> that's not the first command he gave. The first command he gave, among the very first commands, was you may eat of every tree. Just read another, another uh, uh, The Dragon and the Garden or something like that by Andy Wilson the other day and they make a fairly big deal out of this point. They have, and it's illustrated, it's a kid's book, illustrating it's this glorious garden depicting all the different trees and stuff and make a point to say, God goes around and says, yes, yes, yes. The command is you may eat from every tree, right? And just <laughs> pulling it out just a little bit, just imagine walking around. He doesn't finish the command. He doesn't give the, the uh, uh, prohibition for a while, let's say. He walks around with them. Ah, uh, this one and that one. They walk around every tree and it, hours of walking around eating this delicious fruit. And then they're like, oh, and by the way, there's one thing you can't do. You may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? From the very beginning, this is who God is. He wants to bless. He overflows in giving. That's who he is. God blesses and bestows favor. We sang about this. He is a fountain of living waters. He overflows. That's what a fountain does. It goes like that. 
And Jeremiah 2, Jesus, a number of other places, describe God as a fountain. This is who he is. 1 Peter 5.10 says he is a God of all grace. And in my definition here, as grace being undeserved favor, the uh, God of all grace here, we're talking about the favor. God wants to bless and he gives favor. Then undeserved, this favor that God overflows is amplified like 10,000 times when it's combined with the all-important aspect that, catch this, it is untoward, undeserving sinners. God wants to bless and he chooses to bless. It's who he is. And it is toward undeserving of that blessing, sinners. Uh, some argue, it seems right, but the difference here between mercy and grace, we sing about mercy and grace, they're often uh, combined, they're often near each other, they're very similar, they overlap a great deal. And I'm not totally certain on this question myself, uh, but Tozer says this, God's goodness confronting human misery, mercy, excuse me, mercy is God's goodness confronting human misery and guilt, and grace is his goodness directed toward human debt and demerit. Not merit, but demerit. His mercy is God's goodness confronting human misery and guilt. Grace is his goodness directed toward human debt and demerit. Men and women are all equally guilty and all have demerit before the perfect, just judge. Grace is God acting to give merit where there was none and remove debt where there was much. Grace is God acting to give merit where there was none and remove debt where there was much. The nature of God's goodness overflowing to those who deserve punishment is critical to a right understanding and right affection toward the God of grace. It really is critical they get the undeserving aspect in here. You will never rightly love God unless you receive his grace as someone who does not deserve it. And don't be, uh, well, no, don't be. Some of you maybe are naive to just how prevalent a rejection of this truth is. Um, it's very, very common to reject this truth in modern Christian churches. I remember going to a church when I was younger, I think in college about, and I went two different times to the same church and heard the same phrase, miraculously almost, strangely, that I happened to be there, that they said that everyone deserves, their dessert was the love of God. That was their, that was their theology. That was their understanding of the nature of fallen humanity, is that we deserve something. We've earned something. Something is, is uh, coming to us. We deserve it by justice. And that justice, that dessert, is God's love, which I think is the absolute flip of the genuine gospel. And it affects how you think of God. You will not sing amazing grace, right? Uh, how can it be? Well, I'll tell you how it can be. You deserve it. You deserve the love of God. And obviously you're a sinner and and whatever, there's some issues there, and so we're, we're thankful to Jesus. But you cannot sing ama uh, amazing love, how can it be, and feel the greatness of that if you think you deserve it. I've often used the analogy, right? When you get a, your check from your boss, you don't fall on your knees 
and praise him for how generous and bestowing he is. You're amazing. And it's like, no, this was the arrangement. <laughs> Be thankful to your boss. But this is the arrangement. You work for 40 hours and I give you X amount an hour and here you go. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's a both ways, right? You deserve that payment. This is common to reject this truth. Oh, man. You will never rightly love God unless you believe that you do not deserve it. This is why knowing yourself as guilty is so crucial. Listen to Romans 6.23. This isn't my idea, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin, what do you earn from sin? What do you deserve from sin? The wages is death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it is a free gift of God that is eternal life. What you've earned is death and what you get is not. In grace, consider this, in grace you do not receive what you have earned. Death, what justice demands. In grace you don't get what you've earned, namely death, and you do receive what you have not earned. Isn't that weird? In grace, in undeserved favor, undeserved favor, you don't receive what you've earned and you do receive what you have not earned. I would suggest that if that doesn't sound wrong to you, you are not paying attention in general, or you simply don't believe you have actually earned death. Maybe other reasons too. <laughs> Those are the two that came to my mind. I think that sounds wrong. Getting what you don't earn and uh, not getting what you have earned? What in the world? That sounds wrong. This is the reason, talking with uh, Griffin earlier, this is the reason Christopher Hitchens, who was an atheist, uh, thought that the penal substitutionary death of Jesus, this, what I'm just describing, Jesus dying instead of me, uh, was wicked. He thought it was a wicked thing in the world. It was a horrible moral view of the world. And he thought that, more or less, for that reason I just said. You don't get what you have earned, and you do get what you haven't earned. Getting what you haven't earned and not receiving the just penalty for that which you have done sounds like the definition of injustice, or at least a good definition of injustice. What in the world's going on? <laughs> so this is just at the heart of the cross. This is at the heart of the Christian message. And you guys know this. You've heard this. But this thing, this is the gospel in which we have to grow in our thinking and understanding and genuine belief. It's the thing, the more you believe, the more joyful you are, the more free you are, not just generally, but also, let's say this, free to confess your sins to one another. You'll be free. Your, the, the threat of death is over and you have received grace upon grace. You received eternal life. When you believe that more, you share and confess your sin. How couldn't you? And so I do think this would be injustice if it weren't for the cross. It clearly would be. How can God just pass over sin? It would be wicked of him. Indeed, it would be if it weren't for the cross. 
God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God giving us what we don't deserve and yet is just. This is so because his only son satisfied justice by taking the punishment for our crimes. Some people call it the great exchange. This getting, not getting what you do deserve and getting what you don't deserve is this great exchange that uh, instead of uh, instead of the punishment and death, we get eternal life and ever-increasing joy in God's presence. This is an incredible exchange because of the cross. God's anger and his justice was satisfied. It was met. It was fulfilled in Jesus on the cross. That's the heart of the gospel. And, which is to say the same thing almost, it's the heart of our joy, grace is. We don't deserve it. So you could also simply say, this is just elaborating on this, grace is for pardon. Exactly the gospel, us being pardoned, Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now, uh, Romans 5, verse 9 says this, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, we have been forgiven, we've been made right, we've been made righteous, we've been justified by Jesus' blood, by his death, him shedding his blood instead of us, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He has pardoned us. His grace is undeserved favor. He has favor on us and he pardons us from crimes. Or Ephesians 2, 8. Uh, we'll be here once or twice more. Uh, for by the, uh, Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And he elaborates a little bit. Because if you understand grace, what Paul's about to say is, an, is a bit rep, uh, repetitious, right? By grace you have been saved through faith. And, he goes on, this is not your own doing. Well, undeserved favor is definitely not your own doing, but he makes sure that we understand it. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. So we've been saved by God's grace. It's nothing we've done. We don't contribute to it so that God gets the praise. It's nothing that we can do so that we don't boast ourselves. So grace is for pardon. Grace is also for power. This really struck me as I was preparing for thinking about grace here is I almost always exclusively think of grace as that which saves us, which I just went over, or we're pardoned from our sin, eternal life. It also is God's power to do things in our lives. So listen to this. 1 Peter 4, 10. 1 Peter 4, 10. Quote, as each has received a gift. He's talking about the gifts of the spirit, ways God's made us. As each has received a gift... Use it, the gift, to serve one another. That's the goal of the gifts that the Spirit gives us. Gloriously, we get to give of ourselves to each other as stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, he goes on later, it's power to serve, and what that service is in is God's grace. We're stewarding God's grace. It's God's grace who gives us uh, the power to serve or to speak and teach or whatever. Or even more clearly, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. 1 Corinthians 15, 10 says this, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul says this guilty persecutor of the church, but becomes a follower. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. 
though it was not I, but the grace of God uh, that is with me or in me. I worked harder, but it wasn't I, but the grace of God that was in me. So it's God's grace, his undeserved favor, that is the power through which Paul works hard. And finally, again, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, at the end, says that we are made for good works. It's not a result of works, but we're made for good works to walk in them. And so why does this matter? Uh, It matters so that you not only give all glory to God for your salvation, but for your sanctification and your works as well. It's a much happier path to be able to give God praise for what you do. We are made to walk in the good works that God prepared in such a way that God would get glory for it. And, catch this, we wouldn't be crushed by the attempt to earn them. (laughs) Because the labor, the crushing weight of trying to be a good enough person and get enough things done in life is absolutely crushing. Man, I commend, I don't know how many of you have seen this. Raise your hand if you've seen the Mormon documentary on Amazon. Three or four it's really good. It goes over a ton of interesting Mormon stuff that you'll find you know, jaw-dropping and somewhat crazy sounding and all that stuff. But the last third of the movie is really heavily gospel. And the central problem in Mormonism and, argue, and all other <laughs> pursuits of righteousness in this life, all other religions, the central problem is works righteousness. They have to do and do and do and do and do and do and do. And the Christian doesn't operate that way. We aren't crushed if, in fact, you're believing that it's God's grace working in you. You've been forgiven. In fact, any good work that you do is a result of God's grace and power working in you. So it enables us to do more and more and more without thinking we're needing it. We need to get up our stuff. So grace is for pardon, grace is for power, and then grace is for God's plan for to proclaim and present proclamation presentation and his plan. God's grace is for, how did I put it on the sheet? Show me that sheet. (laughs) I changed it on there. There is that. Grace, his plan of proclamation and presentation. That's why I changed it because that's better. God's grace is for his plan of proclamation and presentation of his grace, specifically. Grace is the ultimate point in what God is doing. So listen to these couple of verses. This is incredible. Ephesians 1, 5 through 6. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to, follow Paul's uh, line of thought, to the praise of his glorious Grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So God's predestinating grace is according to the purpose of his will. And what's it doing? It is doing something, the grace that he's planned. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. That's his intention. He wants it to be proclaimed and praised, his grace. Ephesians 2 the next chapter, 5 through 9, practically all of Ephesians 1 and 2 uh, lends this way really uh, easily. I'll pass that for now. Ephesians 2, 5 through 9, 
God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, he just interjects, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So just pause for a second. It's incredible truth that he's talking about here. God raised us up together with Christ. You're dead in your sins and your trespasses. Um, it's hopeless, but God did this thing. By grace you've been saved. He's reminding us, the readers, that it's nothing you've done. You earn it, right? Raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places, looking kind of into the future, that you're seated with Jesus in heaven. So this is incredible good news. And then he goes on in verse 7, Ephesians 2, verse 7. So that, why did he do all this stuff? So that in the coming ages, he might show something. He wants to present something. He wants to show something. So that in the coming ages, Ephesians 2, verse 7, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He finishes with verse 8 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that's what he's talking about here. Where's the boasting going to (laughs) be? It can't be in you. It's got to be in God. And that's his intention from uh, eternity past, which we'll get to in a second. He wants to show something. He wants to put on display his immeasurable riches, specifically of his undeserved favor. You don't deserve it. He has grace, and that's what he wants to show. That's his point. 1 Peter 4.10, 1 Peter 4, verse 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, again, uh, just uh, verse 11 finishes it off. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's good stewards, as good stewards of God's varied grace, right? So whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Why? In order that... In everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's why. That's why you're supposed to do it in that particular way. That's why we're supposed to speak in a certain way and uh, serve in a certain way in his strength, in his grace. It's his varied grace. And 11b says this is the reason. In order for the purpose that in everything God may be glorified. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's plan, is to proclaim and show he is great and he is gracious. And it has been his plan, finally. It has always been his plan. As I mentioned earlier, grace was not invented at the cross. It was God's plan all along. In one sense, obviously, the crucifixion of Jesus place took, about, uh, took place around 2,000 years ago. Right? Jesus was crucified. God's grace was put on display. But theologically... The crucifixion happened since before the foundation of the world. Listen to this. Theologically, it happened before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 7 and 8. Revelation 13, 7 and 8 says this. Also, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given the beast over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, the beast, Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. 
everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in a book. In the book, The Life of the Lamb of Who Was Slain. It was God's good pleasure to publish a book before the world began. And the title that the publisher chose was Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. God's son dying for those who don't deserve it was written a long time ago. In other words, there was a, there was a book already and there was everybody's name in it who is in, who is supposed to be in it. It happened a long time ago. And he did this on purpose. This is the whole point. This is his plan to display his grace, right? The plan is the ultimate displaying of God's undeserved favor on sinners. So here's how Romans 5.8 spells it out. Familiar verse to you, Romans 5 verse 8. Really important verse. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us in that way. Not just his love, but in this way. Christ died for sinners. You don't deserve it. You were a sinner and he died for you. You were the bad guy and he died for you, right? He laid his life down for you when you deserved the opposite of it. That is how God shows his love in Romans 5.8. And he planned that since before the foundation of the world. God planned to show his love in a particular way. Grace, undeserved favor. That's how he shows his love and it was the plan. It is the song being sung in John's vision in Revelation in 5.9. This is a helpful way. You know, 5.8 and 5.8, Romans 5.8 and Revelation 5.8 gets you these, both of these crucial texts. Uh, Revelation 5, 9, technically, says this. They sang a new song. They're all gathered around the throne in John's vision. and They sang a new song, saying, quote, here's the song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For, or because, you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So the reason that they give uh, in their song, the song Around the Throne, the reason that they give for the lamb being worthy to open it, he's worthy of it, he's earned it, right? He's worthy, is because he was slaughtered. That's what they're singing about. He was slain, right? And it's whoever preaches when I first heard it originally, you know, it's like imagine the lamb up on the, uh, the killing stone and someone took a knife and cut it all away and the blood spilled out. It's a very grotesque image, or at least if you weren't raised on a farm, it wasn't <laughs> anyways, but it's a very bloody image, right? Death. That's the reason he's worthy. Not because he's God or because he's sinless, specifically because he died for other people. He was slain and by that, slaughter, he ransomed people. He satisfied the just anger of God, the justice of God. And that's, God, that's John's vision, right? He comes back, right? Presumably understands some more of what's going on. My goodness, he saw this vision, and he knows that's Jesus. This is what happened. This is how God shows his love. He wants to display his grace. Finally, Romans 9, 22 through 23, and we're almost done here. Romans 9, 22 through 23, uh, the Apostle Paul, I think, even delves, uh, 
He delves into the eternal and inscrutable mystery of God's sovereign good pleasure to comment about the purpose of judgment and grace. I heard Piper on this recently as well actually say he thinks this is the most profound, deep consideration of these things you can get. It doesn't get any deeper. And it might be right. It certainly is uh, (laughs) inscrutable. There is great mystery here. Paul talks about these purposes of God in judgment and grace. And he says this, Romans 9.22. What if God, he's asking a rhetorical question, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What if he's done that? He desired a particular thing. He desired to show himself, to reveal himself, to make himself known because he's good. Even his wrath, his justice is good. What if he's done that, endured vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order, he goes on in verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. What's the final order of events in here is verse 23. He endured that. He wanted to show his power. He wanted to show his wrath and make known his power. He's endured vessels of wrath prepared for destruction so that he could make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. He wants to make known his glory specifically through vessels of mercy because they don't deserve mercy, (laughs) which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That was God's plan. This is Paul teaching about it anyways. He wants to make that known, God did. And it's revealing how great and glorious he is. That's grace. It's undeserved favor. And it's been God's plan since before time began. It's God's intention and it's good for him to display it. God's grace is the thing in which angels long to look. As Hebrews puts it, I think that's Hebrews, right? Um, God's, is it? Peter, thank you, Adam. How dare you correct me, Adam? (laughs) God's grace is the thing in which angels long to look. It is, humanly speaking, impossible and so great as to hardly be approachable or comprehended by heavenly beings. They long to look. I don't think it literally means they have no clue whatsoever, but... They long to see and understand. They're not recipients of grace. As far as we know, angels are not recipients of grace. It's this thing that God did on the earth to undeserving sinners. And yet he's just and good to forgive sinners. And they long to look into that. That's the desire of their souls. Uh, Brief application as we close. One, your joy will grow if you understand and embrace more and more God's undeserved favor. I know that's a really simple application, but man, it really is the heart of the Christian song. It's meant to be. There's a lot of other things too (laughs) that God does in our lives, but the heart of it, the thing, I don't know if you noticed that uh, songs that Adam and uh, Abby, whoever picked them, the things that we're mainly singing about is the grace of God. 
And that's a joyful experience. It's meant to be. And so I just encourage you this, maybe this, because I imagine sometimes that, that maybe you might be sitting even now thinking, I don't seem to ever experience that kind of joy when I sing, for instance. That's just an example. It doesn't have to be only singing. I don't seem to experience the thing you're describing, right? An overwhelming sense, tears flooding down, right? The guy at the Pharisee and tax collector, he gets... The Pharisee doesn't get forgiven. The guy runs home proclaiming the glories of God because he was beating his chest. He was just a sinner. Forgive me, Lord, a sinner. He's just beating and tears are streaming down his face. And God, Jesus says he went home forgiven. He went home justified. And the joy right, that overflows with that, the center of the Christian faith is that. It's joy over forgiveness of sins that you don't deserve. It's incredible. So your joy will grow if you understand and seek to understand and embrace it more and more. Uh, it's a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing. I can't commend it enough. Consequently, as I mentioned earlier, this is a sub-point under this application, is confess your sins to one another that you might find healing. Because it is, isn't all sunshines and puppy dogs and joy and never sorrow. Actually confessing sins and repenting of sins it's very, very hard and painful because we have to die to who we want other people to think of us as and who we want to think of ourselves as. And that's a painful thing, having things die in you, but it's worth it. And so confess your sins. And then secondly, lastly, your compassion and love for others will grow. And you'll leave behind anger and bitterness and judgmentalism and self-righteousness, gossip and slander, Lust, I mean, starting to go more inward there. Uh, your compassion and love for others will grow. As God in Christ has forgiven you, so you must forgive, he says. So the point is to say, and this is how the gospel logic always works, it, the, the, to the degree that you believe what I just all said, <laughs> that you don't deserve it and you've been given infinitely the opposite, it makes everything that anyone ever does to you look like nothing. Look like piddly sins. Even the big ones in comparison. It has to work that way. And I tell you this, unless that continues that way, you believe it, you won't really love others well. You won't really grow in your compassion and love and patience for others because you're, there's still self-righteousness. So man, <laughs> the gospel produces a community that's forgiving and patient and loving and it's a wonderful, wonderful gift, but you have to believe the gospel for that to really happen. Let me say a word of prayer and then give you a moment to consider some questions here.